0: Lift your eyes up, let your wise rise up, see the signs of the times, if it's time, rise up, rise up, when death and hell dwell among all God's people, when those we chose and trusted have become completely corrupted and inherently evil, when the beast that feeds you... Yards, our father's children, when snuff porn and pedo forms begin to get top villain, rise up when famine claims millions, when justice gives blind eyes to billions, when the Lord's anger is no longer feared, if his protection is gone and your enemies are near, if you've seen the sea spill over and the mountains shake, break, and fall, if the moon ever turns blood red and you can't see the sun at all, rise up. Peace and welcome to New Abolitionist Radio on the Black Talk Radio Network, a program that seeks to educate, inform, and agitate on the issue of 21st century legalized slavery. Hosted by social activist and spoken word poet Max Parthis with New Abolitionist and Actionist Johanna Nelaya and Black Talk Media Project founder Scotty Reed. On this program, we discuss recent news on legalized 21st century slavery and human trafficking along with projects and people who help combat it. Today is the May 3rd, 2017 broadcast of New Abolitionist Radio. It's been more than 100 days and nobody has managed to derail the insane Trump train yet. On this day, in 1469, the Italian philosopher and writer Niccolo Machiavelli was born. Machiavelli became one of the fathers of modern political theory. The Prince was first published as a pamphlet in 1513 in it, Machiavelli outlined his vision of an ideal leader, an immoral, calculating tyrant for whom the end justifies the means. Sound familiar? Tonight's guests on New Abolitionist Radio are Malik Shabazz, New York Rican, raised in the Nation of Islam, former U.S. Marine with experience in Grenada and Desert Storm, international poet and activist. His wife, Nia Shabazz, born and raised in New York, mother of five adult children and five grandchildren. Retired with 18 years of law enforcement experience, six years with the Florida Department of Corrections, and 12 with the Seminole County Sheriff's Office. Together, they are presently social activists and members of NCOBRA and the Republic of New Africa. Our list of potential stories to cover today include a hunger strike by the Alabama prisoners, including members of the Free Alabama Movement, and prisoners in the African nation of Ghana in Kumasi Prison a facility built to house 600 that is currently caging more than 6,000. In Trump's America, the biggest winner was private prisons by far with stock values rising over 100% as the new administration throws hundreds of millions of dollars at them like rain. We'll review the GEO Group's quarterly earnings report from CEO George Zoli. In stories of utter genocidal police madness, a Bouch Springs police officer just outside the city of Dallas, fired into a car moving away from him with a rifle and fatally shot fifteen year old honor roll student Jordan Edwards in the head, killing him. We are being told by sources that the police officers involved in the fatal shooting of Alton Sterling in Baton Rouge, Louisiana will not have any charges brought against them by the Department of Justice and after the first trial ended in a hung jury, former South Carolina police officer Michael Slager has now taken a plea bargain for a lesser offense, protecting him from being charged with murder with the murder of Walter Scott. If time allows, we'll tell you why the final hours of Elliot Williams' life in a Tulsa jail is being called absolutely disturbing. On top of all that, there's about $697 million worth of dirt going down with Core Civic in Kansas, and across the pond, the European Union is pleading with the U.S. state Arkansas to stop killing people in bunches. Our abolitionist and profile will be provided by Scotty Reed, a rider of the 21st Century Underground Railroad, is Malcolm Jabbar Bryant, who died March 8th of a stroke a few weeks shy of his 43rd birthday, this after having his charges finally vacated in May of 2016 following 18 years in prison for a crime he did not commit. Our new segment, For Freedom's Sake, A History Rebellion, remembers John Brown's raid on Harper's Ferry, October 16th, 1859. Have a question or a comment? Just call us at 866-510-9025. That's 866-510-9025. You can chat with us and others by logging in at uberconference dot com slash blacktalkradio network. Once again, I'm Max parker What's happening, brother Scotty? How's your week, there, hey, man? Hey, I, I'm
1: I'm still here, man. I you know I kind of hate to complain sometimes because there are so many people doing worse than us, and and I'm specifically uh talking about modern day. While we don't want to dehumanize them but, by calling them slaves, but let's just call them victims of modern day slavery and human trafficking. Uh, when you are are living under the horrid conditions that many of these people are living under, it kind of puts your life into perspective. So, you know, I'm doing great compared to so many other people. So I don't want to complain too much. Um How are you doing, uh, Max? How did the uh, event go? I know that over the weekend that you traveled to Asheboro, North Carolina, uh, to do a
0: review of the film 13. How did that discussion go? Um, that was an experience and a half wonderful. Uh, actually, we went down and spent a few days. We had one day where we did two presentations. Uh, The community came at 11 and watched the film. Then we had a community discussion. And then at 6 o'clock, we d- repeated the process. And uh, the 11 o'clock was very... Uh, intimate. There wasn't that many people there during the earlier time, but those who should have been there were there. (laughs) And one brother blew my mind, man, when he came and uh, introduced himself to me and then started talking to me about specific times in uh, tribalized life where we did some pretty heroic stuff. And I didn't know anybody was even aware of that, but he knew all about it. So that kind of blew my mind. to know that somebody was aware of our history and, and some of the things we had participated in. Uh, prior to the last few years. Uh, We had a great discussion then. And then in the evening, all of the movers and shakers and the uh, activism uh, within the Asheville community were there. So from politics to the grassroots, they all showed up and represented. We watched the film together the 13th. I think it was like my 12th time seeing it, maybe more. And uh, then we had a community discussion. I gave them some of the information that I normally would give out about The connections in order to see modern day slavery, and to offer abolition as an answer, because in the film they really don't provide any workable solutions. So, you know, I was there to do that. I spoke with people who were uh, sitting on the boards of the ACLU, Um, the Quaker community, and mass participated. I also sat with the uh, racial justice committee there, and we uh, discussed issues in Asheville as well as the rest of the nation. It was pretty powerful, brother. And uh, shout out to Sharon Smith and uh, all the people there in Asheville that made it possible. We had a heck of a experience. I'll try to put it in writing as well as provide some photos and videos of the event. But the future looks bright, Scotty. Uh, they're going to be part of the March on Washington on August 19th, the Asheville Black Lives Matter community, uh, as well as the Quaker community, uh, participants in the Quaker community. And uh, they're organizing now. And also, abolition had already existed in Asheville through some of the people that who have been regular listeners here with us, but now even on well a larger Robin, level.
1: It, Robin is part of the Black Talk Radio Network broadcast family. Did you get to hook up with uh, Robin?
0: Yes. Robin was the first person I saw when I came down. We stopped and we, uh, uh, you know, uh, chatted with Robin for a while, spent some time with him. I didn't get to spend too much time on the way out uh, as Things went a little longer than expected, but I did get to see Brother Robert. Whenever I'm in town, I'll, you know, I'll stop by and see him in the missus.
1: Yep. For those listening right now, uh, please, if you haven't uh, taken a listen to Race Treaty, which examines the plight of black people in a human rights context and they talk a lot about solutions have great guests on and robin uh, is a abolitionist so that's race treaty every friday night at nine o'clock p.m eastern time right here on black talk radio network um great to hear max that uh you had a successful trip and to learn that abolition continues to grow and you know because like you say that's the only solution reform isn't a solution because you cannot reform slavery you have right. to abolish it so i'm i'm certainly glad to get that uh report that field report uh from you um now i do want while we have time before our guests come on uh this wasn't included in the lineup of stories and we hope we'll have time to get to them all but i just want to Uh, point out, we discussed, or I mentioned uh, Sheriff David Clark Jr. up there in Milwaukee. And since our last broadcast, um, a grand jury has recommended that six or seven of his deputies be charged with the murder of the man that uh I can't recall his name right now, Mr. Thomas, I believe. I can't recall his first name, but um, you know, deprived him of water for seven days to teach him a lesson. This was a man suffering from mental illness. Um he clogged up his toilet and flooded his cell. So they were going to show him, you know, uh a less give him a lesson and they killed him. I also want to give a shout out to those who participated in the Day Without Immigrants March in Milwaukee as I read reports about that, I was happy to see that um, those uh, the, the immigrant activists or the advocate for immigrants in this country made mention of human rights violations and did not assign a color to it and said that whether you black, white. Hispanic, purple, blue, yellow, you're a human being and you deserve to be treated as such. And no one deserves to be tortured in a jail as they brought up, you know, that brother's uh, death in that jail. And again, you know, it was about four people who died in that jail last year, including a woman who was denied medical care, although she had went into labor. Uh, She ended up giving birth in the jail and the baby died as a result. Um, I believe that uh, Sheriff Clark deserves um, to be charged as well. But what I'm not hearing is that anyone has been charged. I heard the grand jury gave the recommendation, but I've yet to read a report where they have actually been arrested. So just wanted to give that update.
0: Yeah, I think we did cover some of it last week as well um, regarding him and the circumstances. Thank you for the update, man. Uh, there's a couple of updates coming out. We just got in breaking news uh, right before we came in on the air. Thanks. Uh, shout out to Crystal Roundtree and I am com and the organization there who's behind the march. But apparently, the doctor. Wait, let me backtrack a little bit. If you remember, we've been speaking about Christopher Epps, the commissioner of the Mississippi State Prison System, and how at one point he was facing over 300 years of charges for corruption within the the entire state of Mississippi. I mean, like real deep corruption. So he's been giving state evidence, and apparently he pointed them in the direction it would seem of one of the doctors who was bribing officials as well. So now you had a doctor who was bribing the officials for their services rendered. I'll I'll put that in the New Abolitionist radio page so people can take a look at it. But I suspect there's going to be a lot more names listed. We're talking about the entire state of Mississippi uh, being corrupt. Because of its prisons and the interactions between private business, international companies, state and uh, and federal entities, as well as prison uh, personnel.
1: Um, Just a quick um, technical question, Max, are are you on the board? Um, Because I don't want to miss your guests. So if you see them pop up on the board, you can unmute them yourself as well. So I'm looking okay. forward to hearing from them.
0: Well, they're on the road, so they may be calling from anywhere. Brother Malik, and the, if you're on the line, just press star, star to unmute yourself. Once we know we got you on, then I'll reintroduce uh, you as well, and we'll go from there. So if you're listening in, just press star, star, and that should unmute you unless you have your phone muted uh, itself. And yes, Scotty, I'm, I'm looking at the board now to see. Okay. So I don't okay. recognize any of the particular numbers just yet. And well,
1: anyway, I, uh, yeah, just to let people know, um, you know, Johannan hopefully will be joining us uh, later as he's an integral part of this broadcast. But, Max, did you want to go ahead and, and jump in some of the first stories until uh, we're joined by the guests?
0: Yeah, yeah, we can do that most certainly, Scotty. As a matter of fact, let me pull up my list and see what we had in the order here that we had planned on going on. Oh, of course, uh, the story about the 15-year-old brother, Jordan Edwards, who was shot in the head. Um, You know, I I, I so often dread telling these stories, man, because after a while, this is the stuff that creates that depression. In the position that we're in, we see and hear these things so damn often. You know what I mean? Like, it's just amazing. And I know that there's been uh, several stories coming out of the police department. Uh, they tried to justify it at first, and then they found out that the video showed uh, a story that was in contrast to what it is they were saying. Oh, Lord, the D- Dallas Morning News is trying to make me buy a freaking uh, uh, <laughs> a subscription right now. Scotty, are you able to access that story? If not, I'll pull up another one. Let me see here. Yeah, I pulled like five or six stories of it out in order to talk about but. This one is updated at eleven twenty Tuesday. It says with it says by the Dallas Morning News. That's what it says. All right. Can
1: you pull it up? Are you ready?
0: Yeah, able- I pull it up and it just gives me this big ass uh, sign in here by the the Dallas News.
1: Okay, and, uh, let me see if I can pull it up. It's the headline, fifteen year olds brothers yeah. watched him die. Okay. Yes. See if I can pull that up. Um it's coming up. You know, um, I don't I understand. I don't get angry uh, when these publications I'm not saying you did, Max, but I don't get angry when these publications um, try to sell you subscriptions to access the information because this kind of stuff does cost money, you know, and we should. Oh, man. It, it's not. Let me see if I, got I
0: can. It. Uh, it's OK. I found I'm, another I'm, article. I hadn't intended on the
1: <laughs> subscription. So, for those, on those subscriptions when you first pull up the article right click and then hit print and then you can read it from the print screen that's just a little trick i learned so all right I, i'm trying to pull right. it up but if you want to go into uh, another um um publication that you pulled up about the story yes
0: if you yes i've got the daily news article here from uh king where he uh was talking about the story itself. And the headline says, cop who killed Jordan Edwards should be arrested, especially after police changed their story about shooting. So his story, uh, Sean King, and we've read a few of his, he says, I'm so angry right now that I have to admit I'm struggling to put one sentence in front of the other. Police fatally shot a Texas boy, then quickly changed their story about what happened. I think we will know the name Jordan Edwards for the rest of our lives. At 3.11 a.m. on this past Sunday morning, he received, uh, Sean did, a terrible gut-wrenching emergency email. He said he must admit that he he gets so many that it's hard to keep up. But by sheer happenstance, he actually saw this one. And the email was titled, Shooting of an Unarmed Black Teen," and it read as follows. Uh, Sir, my best friend's son was murdered by the Balch Springs Police Department last night, just outside the city of Dallas. He was 15 years old. His name is Jordan. The police never came to the hospital and have been of zero assistance. This family needs answers. He was leaving a party with his brothers. The police are still holding his brothers in jail. We need some help, please. Just a few hours earlier, a police officer in the town of Batch Springs, which is about 15 miles east of Dallas, got a rifle and blew a boy's head off with it. I don't mince words. That's exactly what happened. That boy, Jordan Edwards, was a brilliant, beautiful, beloved, young brother full of promise, gentle and kind, hopeful, handsome, athletic, and as smart as they come, a 3.5 GPA student who had no enemies on this earth. He was a sweet but strong, lighthearted, but determined, focused, but also a dreamer. Like kids do as spring creeps into summer, and precisely as I did— When I was his age, Jordan attended a house party this past Saturday night alongside nearly 100 different kids from the community. His brother drove the family car there with Jordan and two of their buddies. They had permission to be there and permission to use the car. They were being responsible. At least one neighbor called police because of the noise and volume of kids who showed up for the party. As police arrived, Jordan, his brother, and their friends got in their car and left. They had not been drinking, they had not been smoking, they did not have knives or guns, they had not been fighting, they simply got in their car and left. And here's what the police said Sunday about the shooting. There was an unknown altercation from the vehicle backing down the road towards the officers in an aggressive manner. An officer shot at the vehicle, striking a front seat passenger, the individual was transported to the hospital where he was pronounced deceased. That The statement paints a particular picture of what happened. But by Monday, the cop's story had changed. In a nervous press conference, Balt Springs Police Chief Jonathan Haber retracted his first statement, saying, strangely saying that he unintentionally and incorrectly claimed that the car backed down the road towards the officers in an aggressive manner, And that the car was actually driving away from the party when an officer they refused to name got a rifle and fired multiple shots at this car, striking Edwards in the face, killing him right there in front of his brother and his friends. Now, Chief Haver now admits that after viewing the body camera video, that he does not believe the shooting met our core values. The shooting also doesn't follow the department's policy. Then fired the officer who killed Jordan. County investigators who are looking into the shooting should arrest that officer right now, Sean King says. Nothing short of this is accept- acceptable. Truthfully, even that is not enough, but it's a start, and needs to happen quickly. The uh, article in its entirety is available at New Abolitionist Radio. I think I read just about all of it, but it's, you needed to know. And he described what occurred. These boys good boys <laughs> doing nothing wrong. They're just out late as teenagers, 15 years old, right before school's about to start and uh driving away from party when the shit hits the fan like you would expect them to do. And that was enough for some officer to decide he's going to, and they don't even name the cop. You killed somebody's kid, You don't, they don't even name him. And he's still with the department. He picks up a rifle and starts firing indiscriminately at the back of his car and blows this young kid's head damn near off. There was descriptions I heard, Scotty, where they said that the brothers saw smoke rising from his brother's forehead after his brains had been splattered.
1: Yeah, I I read that too, man. I I just, man, my heart goes out, um, not only for the victim, but the other victims that were in the car, uh, with him either any of them could have been hit so to me that was the attempted murder of four individuals and the murder of one and not that it matters about this young man's uh, background which was shared by King it, it, it doesn't matter because we see often that they if if a, a person anybody whether it's a child or an adult has ever gotten in any kind of you know, trouble, gotten a ticket. They, Oh, they gonna dig up that dirt and put it out there on them. So that doesn't matter. But but what does matter is, is that, you know, this young man, well, everybody's full of promise. Let me just uh, correct myself. Everybody is full of promise. But when young lives like this are are snuffed out, you know, in the blink of an eye with the pull of a trigger, It's just so sad, man. And it's just something that, man, it's just something, man, that it needs to end, man. And it is connected to modern day slavery and human trafficking.
0: I just got a note and a reminder from uh, Otis Griffin that the cop was named and terminated uh, as an update uh, link, which I'll be providing now on the website. So shout out to Otis for that. Thanks a lot.
1: Yeah, I knew that they had fired him right away. And I think, you know, that sends a good message because a lot of times and what what may be played at play here or why they moved so quickly to fire him is because this was not a unionized police department. Although individual police, if the department isn't unionized, they can still uh, get membership in the national uh police unions which were so uh effective in helping uh get Donald Trump elected and also the confirmation of Jeff Beauregard session, who I'm also going to hold responsible. For this, When he sent that message out to police across the country that the Justice Department does not plan to tell police how to do their jobs and they're not going to spend money uh, investigating these cases for civil rights violations. But, you know, I do think that it is good that they did move quickly to fire this guy. Now, what is the D.A. doing? Because they got videotape of it. They got eyewitnesses. OK, so it, it, it should not take a month. It shouldn't take six months. It shouldn't take a year.
0: Well, you know, I've learned not to expect a lot, man. The The, the okie doke is real in this damn Department of Justice, as can be expressed in what's happening right now here in South Carolina with the officer who shot Walter Scott in the back on video. And we all remember what we saw. This cop shot him. This, the man was hobbling away. He, he couldn't run more than a, a mile or two per hour at best. You could see it yourself. And he shot him in his back multiple times and then went over to his body and tried to plant evidence, this frame, this dead man, for trying to attack him, the cop, never knowing that there was someone with an independent camera filming it all from afar. And then he also had people come in who was attempting to help cover it all up, Right. So you know the original, uh, the first trial ended in a hung jury, and we remember all the stories about that. So now what they're doing is they're offering this dude a plea bargain, and with the plea bargain, he'll lead, he'll plead guilty to a lesser offense, offense, a civil rights violation, and that way he can't be charged with murder. Shoot him on video in front of the damn world. Try to frame him in uniform and they are offering him a lesser charge plea bargain so he can very likely walk away free in a short period of time
1: max now i'm a bit confused by this um there was a video that i shared on black talk radio but i couldn't listen to it on our facebook page uh i could not listen to it i can't remember the attorney's name it's a black woman um But anyway, she was talking about it, but I could not listen to it because we were broadcasting at the time. But she, you know, what she put in the description was pretty much what you said. Now, I don't understand. I don't understand. Federal charges are different than state charges. Take, for example, Dylan Roof. He got convicted in federal court and state court, if I'm not mistaken. He was and wasn't Slager also facing state charges of murder. So how did all of that go away just by him cutting a deal with Jeff's uh, Borygar Sessions uh, Justice Department?
0: Yeah, that's pretty much what happened. Uh, the black professor broke it down in like a 45 minute uh, uh, essay, I guess, vocal essay where he just explained it all. Uh, I'm going to put that on New Abolitionist Radio so other people can check it out too. He really broke it down in detail. But yeah, it's like I said, it's a hustle, man. It's an okie doke. So this dude that openly killed this black man and, you know, just murdered him down and cut his life out from underneath him and then tried to cover it up. Like he had done this before, like, okay, I know the steps one after another, here we go. Like he had done that before shed a few tears, few white tears. And uh, now he's got a plea bargain where he can't even be charged for murder anymore. Now, as far as state and federal, I think this is civil and state that we're dealing with at this point. But, you know, I'm no expert on these cases. I only know what I see and how the results end up.
1: Yeah, I'm I'm pulling up the article from WLTX.com. It has a a video uh, posted. I'm trying to let it load, but let me just read a little bit from it. Let me just stop this video. Matter of fact. Uh, Let me see. Former South Carolina police officer Michael Slager is pleading guilty to violating the civil rights of an unarmed black motorist he shot and killed as he ran from a 2015 traffic stop. A copy of the plea agreement attained by the AP on Tuesday also shows state prosecutors are dropping a pending murder charge against Slager in the death of Walter Scott. Start off
2: today in the Low Country. Former North Charleston police
1: Okay, that is taking a minute to load up. Oh, give me just a second. Sorry about that. Uh, Let's see. Slager, oh, let me back up. State prosecutors are dropping a pending murder charge against Slager in the death of Walter Scott. The AP obtained the agreement with a lawyer familiar with the case who didn't want to talk publicly before it was finalized. Slager was scheduled to appear in federal court Tuesday for motions ahead of his federal trial pla- plan for later this month in the death of Walter-, Walter Scott. So it's still not giving me any details. I want to know the details. Max, if you oppose post what that professor posted, uh, I'll check it out later. But there is absolutely no reason for the state to be dropping murder charges and whoever that prosecutor is need to be held uh, to account for this.
0: Right. It's been portrayed as a victory and it is not a victory at all. If anything, it feels like the Annie Dukin circumstance where, you know, she affected 60,000 lives and was out in less than two years and the people whose lives she had affected to the point that they were incarcerated have yet to even have their cases reviewed, and she's already served her time and got out. It's disgusting,
1: Max. It's just very disgusting. Um, It's all very depressing. But these are the things that we need to hear about so that we um, we have an accurate view of the battlefield out there instead of this false reality so you know it, it does get depressing i was depressed last week for about five days and you know i'm I'm feeling a lot better now but you know this man it, it, it's just so sad man and it, it, it's times i just want to cuss man but i i this family friendly show so Man, it's just enough to just make you want to go out there and do something that you know we shall not speak about on this program.
0: Yeah, for me, the hardest thing has always been trying to uh, not become desensitized because we're exposed to this on such a regular basis. To to keep in my mind that these are human beings, my brothers and sisters, and this is and every one of them is worth starting a revolution over. Not all of them together. Any single one of them is lives are worth us changing everything to save. Collectively, we should have started a long time
1: right. ago. And Max, if we don't tell their story in a proper context,
0: then who will? Right. Uh, once again, if uh, Brother Malik and Nia, Sister Nia, if you're on the line, uh, I don't know what number you'll be calling from, just press star star to unmute yourself and give us a yell and we'll know you're on the line and uh, then we'll go ahead with your interview. Uh, I know you're on the road if you're listening from somewhere so if uh, maybe something that had came up I'm not sure. But in any case if called uh, in, just uh, press do star, you call in have star. a number for them because uh, I can text you. Yeah, let me see here. Scott Reed. Okay. okay.
1: While you look for that, I'll go ahead and move into another story. Uh, Let's see the next story. Let me get to the uh, top so we don't skip them. Uh, Tag, uh, a Black Talk Media Project contributor posted this and is talking about the hunger strikes inside of Alabama prisons from protests to force feeding. Um, Let me see. Let me go ahead and pull this up from a L com it was published april the 30th it says the hunger strike is alive and well in alabama where state prisoners have deployed the tactic at least 27 times over since march 2013 shout out again to the free alabama movement and everybody associated with that on all, top on october the 30th okay let me uh check something right quick OK, yeah, this is a recent article I was thrown off by the um, the start of that talking about October the 30th. OK, on October the 30th, correction officers found Robert Earl Council lying unconscious and unresponsive on his bed in a stark solitary confinement cell at Limestone Correctional Facility. He was on the 10th day of a hunger strike protesting his treatment at the Alabama prison where he believed he was under constant threat. Of violence okay let me this is one of the leaders of the new of the uh free alabama movement he was in solitary confinement as punishment for organizing against modern day slavery with his fellow prisoners and victims okay so he was in solitary confinement which is torture uh so that um you know so they could punish him this was a punitive action all right so It goes on to say that counsel, um, who goes by the nickname Kinetic Justice, uh, was rushed to the prison's infirmary. Medical personnel tested his blood and found that his blood sugar count had fallen to a potentially dangerous 52, according to Dara Folden, a member of the Free Alabama Movement's Queen Team, a grassroots prison reform advocacy group. In order to bring his blood sugar back up to healthy levels, medical staff provided him with nourishment against his will. Folden, uh, who stays in close contact with counsel, said, let me stop right there. That's commitment to ending slavery right there to where you're willing to die for your beliefs and not for, well, let me restate that you're willing to die for your cause cause beliefs is when you don't know something for a fact, I believe, but we know for a fact that slavery exists in Alabama, like it exists all over the United States. So that just says something to his commitment. And it's not just the way this article is portraying it. It's like he was just doing it for himself. No, this was part of a a prison-wide movement to bring awareness to the conditions. And he wasn't doing it for himself. He was doing it for everybody. All right. So um, let me see. I am not a dog. Inmates in Alabama state prisons and around the world have long described the hunger strike as one of the most effective tools they have to lodge protests and generate awareness of maltreatment, of violence, and other problems they face behind bars. That's the only time that people, the general public, and law enforcement themselves look beyond somebody being a criminal, or a prisoner, and see them as a human being. Pastor Kenneth Glasgow, a spokesman for the Free Alabama Movement who served more than a decade in prison. If I'm being treated like a dog and then I go on a hunger strike, it brings back the fact that I'm not a dog. I'm a human being. So the tactic is alive and well in Alabama, where state prisoners have gone on hunger strikes at least 27 times in the past four years, according to the Department of corrections now i don't want to read the entire article so uh let me see but two current alabama state prisoners two former correctional officers and two prison reform advocates each told al.com that the doc that's the department of corrections does in fact sometimes force feed inmates who refuse to eat so long that their health Suffer So um, the what they're talking about is the Department of Correction declined to say whether it goes so far as to force feed prisoners. So I'm going to stop it right there. What's coming to my mind is the images of Guantanamo Bay, uh, where innocent people are also being held without trial, without charge, and they would go on hunger strikes. And they were being force feed fed. Um, I remember y'all seeing uh, Bay, I think it is by now, um, formerly known as Most Deaf, when he um, went voluntarily went through the force feeding uh, a procedure, and they recorded it so that he could bring awareness to just how brutal that practice is. So that's what came to to my mind. But again, I just want to give a shout out uh, to Free Alabama Movement and everybody uh, who's a victim of slavery who are engaging in anti-slavery actions, whether they on the outside of the prison plantation or whether they are on the inside. Your courage really inspires me, and I just can't um, thank you enough for being a part of the movement to end slavery in the United States.
0: Yes, uh, I agree with you a thousand percent. Um, is Johanan with us at any point yet? Um, no, it, I don't see Johanan. Yeah, I don't see him either. I've been missing him these past couple of weeks. Shout out to Brother Johanan. You know, uh, this we, whole, I wanted to get. Yes, yes. Uh, he said he was going to call in. I just got off line with him while you were doing the story. And uh, he said he should be calling in momentarily.
1: Go ahead and hit star, star if you're on the board.
0: You'll see uh, he'll be calling from a 310 number. I believe it's 310.
1: Okay, I don't see that on the board yet. I'll let you know.
0: Yes, sir. 310. Okay, no doubt. Well, as I was saying uh, also, man, the history of using hunger strikes to bring attention to the suffering that's happening in prisons uh, is long, and we've seen a lot of it over the past few years. Uh, from out in uh, where is it in California, where the prisoners were on hunger strikes there last year and the year before, till now with the Free Alabama movement, and also they're doing it in Africa as well. Some months ago, I might have, uh, I think I did tell you and the listeners that I had some contacts out in Ghana that had uh, expressed an interest in us coming out there and helping them to start an abolitionist movement in Ghana, in freaking in Africa. And after some research, I, had, I realized why. They're in a worse circumstance in Ghana than we are here in the United States with these uh, prisons being used for profit. They have a hunger strike going on right now at Kamasi Prison, uh, which was established decades ago. It's one of the country's oldest prisons, and it was meant to hold only 600 people, but right now it's got over 6,000 people in it. In a place that was built the whole 600, has 6,000, and they're on a hunger strike at this moment there. So, you know, when we tell you stories, no,
1: I'm sorry. I didn't mean to interrupt you, uh, brother. Um, no, I'd like ahead. to know no. driving that. What's driving that increase in, in uh, those numbers? It, because we have reported and we try to stress to people that we're in the belly of the beast and that the core civic uh formerly known as Correction corporation of america and the geo group um are international companies they may be based here in the united states but they operate globally and they have been exporting their model of slavery globally trying to get into brazil um, Geo Group already has taken over all the prisons in Australia, and you can imagine who there those prisons are filled with: Aboriginal people, melanated people, the the uh, original inhabitants of that island. So, and we've talked about uh, the largest private employer in Africa is a, a, a security and, and prison based company, G4S. So, yes, the abolitionist movement needs to be global, Max.
0: It does, brother. And I'm seriously considering trying to go out there and give them a hand if the um, ways and means make themselves available. Because when you start hearing stories like that, you know, and uh, seeing the horrors that they're dealing with out there, if we could just show them what we've done over here, (laughs) which, you know, I I don't know how much of a success it is because we haven't ended slavery, but we've damn sure stirred the pot enough for it to be able to happen. So maybe we can do that over there. I I, I don't know. Anyway, it's something to think about, man. And shout out to everybody that's, uh, you know, participating in things like hunger strikes in order to bring attention to the suffering that is being uh, waged across the globe now, particularly on people of color. So once again, uh, let me look up here and see if three one zero has come in yet. No, I think. It, oh, there we go. All right, I see a three one zero, no doubt. All right, let me uh, unmute you here. Is that uh, Brother Malik? Y'all new abolitionist radio? And let me. There you go. I got you unmuted. Hello? Yes, I can hear you. What's happening, brother? Uh, welcome to the New Abolitionist Radio. Is Sister Nia with you as well? Give yes, thanks. Yes, she is. All right. Indeed, indeed. Uh, pardon to our uh, listeners about the delay, but, you know, this is a very natural program, so it's, it's no big deal, man. Uh, let me do a quick introduction again, just so you know who we're about to talk to, Malik and Nia Shabazz. Uh, Malik is a uh, New York Recon, raised in the nation of Islam, former U.S. Marine, experienced in Grenada and desert storm international poet and activist. Sandia is born and raised in New York, mother of five children, adult children, and five grandchildren, retired with 18 years of law enforcement experience, six years in the Florida Department of Corrections, and 12 with the Seminole County Sheriff Office. And right now, they're both uh, active members of Cobra as well as the Republic of New Africa. So welcome to New Abolitionist Radio, brother and sister.
3: Thank you. Thank you. Appreciate you. Appreciate you. Appreciate all the work you're doing, too.
0: Well, (laughs) indeed, brother. We have been blessed to spend some time together and get to know each other even better. And in the future, uh, I think on the 19th, we'll be getting together as well again. You know, your whole story has intrigued me from the very beginning, uh, particularly your participation within COBRA and the Republic of New Africa, as well as being uh, in the administrative functions of uh, the Republic of New Africa. And then you and I talking about abolition. And you was like, you know what? (laughs) We're right on point, brother. And here's how. So that was an amazing moment for me indeed. Uh, Could you tell us about the Republic of New Africa, the role you play, and some of the beliefs uh, of that organization and how they coincide with the abolitionist movement?
3: Okay. Well, um, the Republic of New Africa was born March 31st, 1968. Um, Our founding fathers is uh, Omar Wali, Malik Shabazz, known as Malcolm X uh Doctor Omari Obadeli and his brother Gaedi Obadeli. Uh it was at that point um in history where they decided that we are a nation, a people with a distinct uh, a distinct people with a distinct culture who were ripped away from our uh, homeland and that for the only way for us to truly have a, a true independence is to have our own land and our own territory. So they carved out five states, South Carolina, Louisiana, Mississippi, Alabama, and Georgia. That's our national territory. Um, We had a convention uh, in Detroit, Michigan, at the church where Aretha Franklin's father was the preacher. And we have 500 uh, members from different um, formations that came and declared our independence from the United States and we have our uh, the Declaration of Independence, and we also have, uh, like our constitution called the Code of Moja. And basically our ultimate goal is to free those five states and to, for those five states to be one nation. Uh, at this point, the, it's called the Republic of New Africa, and it's a black government for black people. And we believe that that's the only way we're gonna have justice, and we're going to be able to um, uh, change the condition of the planet uh um to basically uh to restore justice on planet earth but uh, but that's the goal and my role um I started off at the Republic of New Africa as um a soldier we also have the Black Legionnaires which is the military arm the security arm of the um of the nation and uh I'm currently holding the position of major and i also hold um i'm the vice uh pcc chair pcc is the people center council is the highest legislative. is the highest it's the highest body um of the republic of new africa that's where all the decisions are made even over the president and um that's pretty much it so we've been working uh we just celebrated our 49th birthday uh a couple of weeks ago in march um and we're just, right now we're working on our 50th, which we're going to be celebrating in in Detroit, Michigan.
0: Um, I was reading an article on the history because I'm not as familiar with the history as as I like to be. But I was reading an article from uh, The Black Past Remembered, and it says uh, part of it that $400 billion in reparations for the injustices of slavery and segregation uh, was demanded by the Republican New Africa. It also argued that African-Americans should be allowed to vote on self-determination as that opportunity was not provided at the end of slavery when the 14th Amendment to the U.S. Constitution incorporated African-Americans into the United States. The key word here, and I don't know if somebody from the organization wrote this or if it was simply uh, gathered as information by the authors of this particular article, but it, the key Hello. here... Hey, Nia. Welcome to New abolitionist <laughs> Radio. <laughs>
4: Sorry, Max, it's Anne Marie. You guys are not transmitting. Oh, I'm sorry. <laughs> <laughs> it's been like five minutes. I'm sorry. I, I was I washed the dishes while I'm listening to you guys, so I'm like nothing's coming through and it keeps showing up like it's pausing itself online. You're not transmitting.
0: Hey I Scott, just
1: I just noticed that and it's it's resolved. Sorry about okay. that, but thank you for
4: calling thank me. You. Right. Yeah, because I missed the last five or ten minutes. So I'm
0: like, what's? <laughs> Sorry, uh, I, I didn't mean to interrupt. Uh, no All problem. Bye bye. So, what I was saying there, uh, Brother Malik, is that the key words being provided at the end of slavery when the Fourteenth Amendment of U.S. Constitution incorporated African Americans in the United States. And I know for a long time, many people believed that that was the end of the slavery. But a- after you and I started talking. He was like, you know what, Matt, you are right, and I'm going to go talk to the brothers, and we're going to support this march that's coming up, and we're going to make a, uh, a public statement. And how did that work out? Did, did you get to meet with the, the people, uh, your comrades, and come to a conclusion on whether it would be an official thing for the Republic of New Africa to participate in the Millions for Prisoners March and to support it?
3: Well, actually, we're getting ready to go. Uh, this, is, uh, this Sunday will be the first Sunday of the month where we have our conference call, and that's going to be brought up in that, um, on the agenda.
0: Word. Well, I know time. personally you have uh, committed. I already know that because you've already shown the work. So thank you for that. And I hope that uh, the, uh, the group as a whole decides that this is something that should be put on their agenda and that some of the uh, long-held assumptions be slightly changed.
3: Yes, sir. Yes, sir. Like I said, you know, the key to recognize um, the system for what it really is. <clears throat>
0: um, is Nia on the line as well?
3: Yes, she is. She's right here. Go ahead.
0: Hello, Peace, Max. How are you? I'm good. Welcome. Welcome to New Abolitionist Radio. You know, I was dying to get you on here, man, because you know, I, I, I just uh, your story is infatuating. It's it's it's, uh, it's it's definitely very interesting. And to see the progression throughout your life of of going from you know, 18 years in uh, working with police and also seeing the inside, working as a CO within the prisons itself to a freedom fighter, (laughs) you know what I mean? Like, (laughs) you got to tell me about the transition and the feelings and and what happened. I would love to hear that story. Wow, the
4: transition. Well, when I first took the job was because they offered insurance (laughs) and I had children and it was... (laughs) A good offer. It was. I knew it'd be a steady paycheck. And when I took the job for the prison system, that was the first place I thought it was. I didn't figure it any different than you know having children at home. It basically, pretty much was the same thing. And then they offered me. T- technically, really, it was um monetary. They offered me more money going on the road if I get dual certified. Wasn't too many females at the time on the road, so I took that position also. They offered me more money, less time to work, more benefits. I was more time at home. But in in both cases, when I went into it, it wasn't I, – I didn't go into it with the perception of I want to, you know, enforce law. I wanted a job that had good insurance. And so I basically fell into it. And I, I did like my job. I liked my people I was around. Did I agree with everything? No, I never agreed with everything from the beginning. So I kind of went my own path. It took me a while to get promoted, but I finally made it. Then again that was just for money. So but you know, like I say, um then, you know, as my children became teenagers, us being of so called Latino descent, they were constantly harassed. Particularly in Volusia County, the sheriff there at the time, Ben Johnson, was well known, it was worldwide, um for his profiling stops and he said he did do it. I didn't work for that particular county, but I lived in that county. So then again, firsthand, you know, you feel that um, pressure of racism all the time, but I didn't bring that to work with me. So yeah, so when Malik was, we grew up together as neighbors and I found out he was an activist. I already had retired. I did my own little activism once my children grew up, but nothing to this extent. I wasn't around people that way, but when I reconnected with him, then I was retired, had time on my hand. I went full force with it because I know the other side of it.
0: Yeah, that must have really given you some great insights, Scotty. Would you like to ask anything? Well, yes.
1: Um, First, I just want to bring out the point that you made—that how powerful it is—and we hope um, that uh, in Cobra will become part of the abolitionist movement because i had spoken to N.Cobra cobra members before who had appeared on different programs on our networks and i would bring that to their attention that yes i believe that that uh not only the descendants of enslaved africans because whether you was a free black or enslaved african you were suffering under white supremacy terrorism OK, and so that you do, you should be given reparations for that. But at the same time, they made my little brother 12 years a slave. OK, that's how no 10 years a slave. I'm sorry. um, 10 years a slave for a crime that he did not commit with no evidence, but had an all white jury and a white judge. And they uh, put him to work on turkey farms while while he was in the North Carolina uh system and I'm saying, you know, this is slavery still exists. The Thirteenth Amendment still exists. So while we asking for reparations, no, not asking, demanding reparations for the past, we need to be asking for uh into slavery and reparations for this current period. So it will be very powerful for reparations groups to become part of the new abolitionist movement. Um In in terms of um, her path through the uh, law enforcement community, it just reminds me of of Neil Franklin, who is the chairman of Law Enforcement Against Prohibition, which is an organization of retired uh, judges, cops, prison guards um, who are working against Mass incarceration. They call it mass incarceration. We call it modern slavery. Uh, but the end is the end goal is the same. Um, and just the power, the power in people who have been in those positions to now speak out and be a part of the movement to abolish, you know, this, this modern day slavery that is going on. Um, So just thank you both for the path that you are on and the work that you are doing.
0: Brother Malik is like a superhero, (laughs) like real dude. You know, he he was part of the invasion of Granada and Desert Storm, right? No, no, Panama. Panama and Desert Storm. A Panama and Desert Storm. Okay. Yeah. Panama Invasion and Desert Storm. I'm sorry. I'll, I'll correct that in yeah. the text as well. You know, he's part of the Panama Invasion and Desert Storm, uh, everything that you would expect out of an American hero. And then he ended up having some uh, medical conditions and got screwed over by the very same country that he had given, you know, put his life on the line to protect and serve. And I can imagine that that was a turning point as well, pushing you further away from the. Traditional beliefs and understandings of what the United States was about into something more radical. Am I? Am well, I? For me,
3: uh, well, for me, it was that it was that um, <clears throat> my turnaround was. I had the foundation was always there because, like I said, I was raised in the Nation of Islam. My father was um, FOI with Malcolm X and, uh, and the Most Honorable mohammed Muhammad. And but for me, it was that when I left to the military, I was homeless, uneducated. And jobless, and I left the military to escape that. When I came home, I was in the same situation. I was homeless, uneducated, and jobless. Mm. So I went through a time warp, and I felt like I went right back to the same position. And that experience shook me to my core. And I did something that I have that I didn't do when I was younger. And I was read. I began to read newspapers, and I fell in love with reading. And when I start, you know, when I started reading all this information, I realized, like, damn, I've been lied to, man. This whole thing is a scam. And from there, just, you know, like I said, the foundation was over there. So even a lot of stuff that I was taught about the white man by the by the, by the nation of Islam, I still believe to this day that he's the devil,
0: mm. point blank. You know, you both, know? Of, both of your stories reflect how we get involved with our own destruction. Uh, they use these prisons and jails and the policing and the arrests and the warrants and all these things as economic development programs. And they offer jobs to multiple people to do them, whether it's out, you know, in a third world country or overseas oppressing someone there or building the prisons here and getting a million police officers employed. And I don't know how many prison guards employed. And we often need those paychecks. You know, it's the only job in town because the factory is. Yeah, and they're about they're about to they're about to hire another um five five ten thousand
3: um border patrols and all this other stuff that was right. just uh, yeah just the other
0: today or the other day, you and know. I wouldn't be surprised if of those five thousand yes. people, they're about to hire a large majority of them are minorities yes. who will be doing yes. to people who come from the you know originally from the same yes. country they came from, you know yes. what the uh, oppressors are doing.
3: Hey, listen. When the Europeans first got there, they did the same thing with the native, the native people. They saw that they had, you know, we all have. Native people always, you know, all these different cultures, even in Africa, they always had their little rifts, and sometimes from time to time they had the little battles. But the white man exploited that, and then he pinned them up against each other. So you had, you know, scouts from one nation, you know, helping the the, the Europeans you know, go scout and grab the other people and stuff, you know, and then when they got through, in fact, this happened. After all the scouts, after the, in fact, it was Geronimo, I believe it was. After they, all those scouts, and they helped them hunt down Geronimo, they took all their guns away, and they threw them in prison.
0: Hmm.
3: You know, well, you know. And, they Best guy. and it's the same thing today. It's the same, as I'm saying, it's the, the European way system that he put in place, that we find today, slavery and reparations and all this stuff. I mean,
1: the whole system is, 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 is total insanity. You know, the whole system. Yeah, um, this Scotty, um, Malik, I'm also a desert storm vet. I was actually on the advance party, um, for desert shield. It was during my time, um, in Saudi Arabia, where I was stationed that I first read Malcolm X's biography I, I might have been 21 22 at the time and that just really opened up my eyes and then I'm getting these uh, uh bomb damage assessment reports and I'm seeing how many people they killing and I'm reading Malcolm and then I'm like oh my god you know what ha- what am I doing yeah. and uh, yeah. after my tour was up man I got out after six years in, in the US Army um, but, um, in terms of my abolitionism, it was about five, six years ago where I, you know, I always had a, a love for reading, but came across the 13th amendment and don't, I don't know how it was possible that I was never exposed to the 13th amendment, uh, you know, until in my, um, uh, what five, six, I was in my forties. And when, but when I read that, and I saw that exception clause. It was clear to me that slavery was never abolished and that all of those soldiers that fought to end slavery were betrayed by, by Lincoln's comprom- compromise with the compromise. Confederates, compromise. which he let uh, write the 13th Amendment. So, hey, we've been on similar paths, brother.
0: Yes, sir. 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 What we want to do, though, is we going to take a little bit past our break. I want to take a break, Scotty. I want to hear a little bit more from Nia's story as well. that's all right with you guys. Well, say that again. We're going to take a quick break. When we come back on the other side of this uh, break, we're going to hear some more from Nia's story and maybe take a call or two if anybody has any questions to ask. You're listening to the Radio here on the Black Talk Radio Network. With Malik and Nia Shabaz, we'll be right back after these messages.
1: like talk radio network for podcasts and live program scheduling visit us on the web at blacktalkradionetwork.com.
0: Peace and welcome back to New Abolitionist Radio here in the Black Talk Radio Network. We're talking with Malik and Nia Shabazz from NCOBRA and the Republic of New Africa. And uh, we're talking about their history, uh, how they came to be what they are today and where they come from and uh, the, you know, the goals that they're trying to achieve here in today's United States of America. When you are, uh, yes, sir. Um,
1: Let's check eight, six, zero. They have unmuted themselves and they've been hanging on patiently. I I just want to see if they have a question or comment. Eight, six, zero. Did you have a question or comment for us? Okay. Um, if not, I'm gonna place you back on mute. Anybody who has a question or comment, please hit star star We'll see you on the board and come to you. please continue max uh
0: indeed uh so I, I said I want to hear a little bit more from Nia as well. Nia, if you don't mind, uh could you tell us more about some of the things that you saw over the years uh really that impacted you and pushed you further and further uh, as you say when you made up met up with Malik, you know you really got into it, but I know before that you saw things that really caused your eyes to open. You and I spoke about a couple of them. Would you mind sharing one or two with our audience and letting them know how you came to be who you are today through your own experiences?
4: Sure. Well, um, just being a, a human and a woman maybe, um, um injustice is the way officers treat people a lot of times unnecessarily. You're, the assumption is already that you're guilty. You did something wrong. That's why I'm here. Don't want to hear you. I'm just going to make my decision. That um, being in prison, one of the big things, medical, medical neglect. It, it's the nurses that work in prison from the time I was there and the people I met, um, I I now, I used to question, like, why aren't you working for a big hospital making a lot of money when you can or work for yourself? Now I know Why? because the way they treat them medically it, it's i've seen some horrific things that's for sure just horrific things um when i finally got a position a uh, powerful position of power i was finally promoted then i figured i can make some changes little changes that i could at least control because when i was just a regular deputy you you can't make no changes like that if you decide to you always got to get a supervisor and a supervisor to side on what he thinks the law should be not what it not what it um what justice is then there was one period of time i was injured and i had to work court services so i got to see the inside of the courts how they run and it is such a assembly line all you are is a file not even a name a file before the you see the judge or even you see your attorney they make a decision on you anyway so your chances when by the time you get there you really think you have a say, so you really don't. They had their decision made. They make it impossible. Everything is pled. Like 99% of cases are pled because it's fear. I don't blame them. It's fear. And then being a mother, just a home mother, when I, you know, come home, I had, like I said, teenage boys and one daughter. And though we didn't live in the same county I worked in. It was even worse. They were constantly being harassed and pulled over. So the norm was just call. I would tell them, just call me. Stay, keep on the line and I can find out where you're at. You know, Say something so the cop won't know and I'll show up. But sometimes it's time to put the cop on the phone. Only thing that saved a lot, sometimes a lot of time of them getting in trouble because I was also in law enforcement. That's the only thing that really saved me. If I wasn't, if I was just a citizen, believe me, they've been jailed more times than they have been already.
0: Man. Uh, yeah, I, I would like to ask as well. Um, in the movie... Do not resist they show where there's this uh one officer a former officer retired cop who goes from station to station to station, just really amping the police up into a superman mentality and giving them directives where they're he's explaining to them that it's either you or him, and anybody could shoot you at any minute and you have to eat them a lot were you exposed to that type type of training. Uh, in your uh, experience as a policewoman? Actually, in the academy, yes.
4: It's it's very paramilitary. So, And if you're new and not, you know, uh, if you're not one that's out a lot, lot nowadays um, law enforcement has changed a lot. They want you to have a minimum, minimum was a two-year degree. So most officers have a four-year degree now. It's changed totally. Um, a lot of these new officers I noticed that are coming about, they have no interpersonal skills whatsoever, they've been born and raised in their own little safe community, so when they do put them out there, even when I had my own shift, I had to assign officers where I felt they would do the community best, like I wouldn't put a white officer in the hood, it wasn't going to work out, there's always going to be problems, but they do that, like I said, the requirements are changing a little bit, so what you're getting are some fresh out of high school, straight out of college, who has not experienced life, and you're putting them in an area where they don't belong. They don't understand either. Either the civilians don't understand, and they don't understand. So they're scared just as much. And, yes, when I saw that um, do not resist, I watched that I was there. um, I kind of chuckled because, yeah, they teach you that. Now, when you graduate the academy and you finally get on the road and you get your first training officer, the first thing a training officer tells you is forget everything you learned in the academy. Now, I do hear... I retired already, but I do hear now they have a little bit more interpersonal skills training and stuff, but it's a knee-jerk reaction to something that happened just to tell the city or the state, okay, um, we trained them now, now we shouldn't have no problem, but that's really to protect them insurance-wise. You got to understand, law enforcement is really, it's it's a business. It's not law enforcement. It's not for the betterment. It's business. Everything's money. Everything is money.
0: Everything has a market value. Hey, Scotty, yes, would you like to ask any uh, final questions of our guests? And if there's anyone online who would like to ask a question, just unmute yourself. Press pressing
1: star. Seven five seven. Just unmuted themselves. Did you have a question or comment?
2: Yes, Scotty. This is Otis again. Hey, hey Otis. Otis. Out in Yorktown, Virginia. I heard the young lady on the on the on the phone back in the '80s. I was into the health club business. And I trained a awful lot of police officers in Tucson, and I found out something that I know is still going on now, now antibiotic steroids. A lot of these cops, because of the conditioning and mentality, they like to bulk up. And the, and now the supplements they use now are no longer the old-style antibiotic steroids. I used to be a bodybuilder, a natural bodybuilder back in the 80s, and I know now Still, even when I moved to Dallas, police officers that because of that aggressiveness and they can't bulk up naturally, they take anabolic steroids. And one of the side effects of that is a hair trick. And and that's not talked about much when it comes to police officers or correctional officers. But (laughs) right up the street from me now from where I am is area jail three miles away. And I'm friends with several people that I grew up with same thing with them because they can't bulk up naturally. They resort to antibiotic steroids and that's part it It dulls your reasoning. It gives you a head trigger personality and that's one of the reasons that you don't see police officers try to de-escalate everything. They want the conflict.
0: Wow. Did you uh, notice that as something that was happening around you, Nia?
4: Yes, I did. When he mentioned that, it made me think, yes, yeah, so a lot of the men, they do do that. Um, they are very competitive among each other. It's a very alpha personality type. Yes.
2: So, yes, yes the, you're correct. You all of all of the combat sports, uh, MMA, all of that is part of their category. Uh, I'll let you go yes, from there.
0: Thanks for the uh, insight there. Otis appreciated that. Scotty, anything else? Yeah, that's something a
1: couple of stories we have shared over the years that we've been on air um, about the use of steroids. And it makes sense. Roy rage. And it also may explain why why ninety nine point nine percent of the officers involved in these brutality cases are males.
0: Right. You right. know, and on the other side of the fence, they apply a lot of the uh, high crime and violence that is happening in inner cities or urban areas to lead poisoning as well. It's, you know, so apparently on both sides of this uh, scenario, the chemicals are very much involved in the attitudes and actions of those participants. Wow. Well, um, There you have it, man. Uh, What I'd like to do now is uh, I want to give Brother Malik and Sister Nia an opportunity to to, uh, express to the crowd anything or to the audience anything you want to say, share any views um, before our next segment. And I definitely want to thank you for coming here today and sharing your story with us and letting us know how you came, where you came from, and what you're about today. So uh, I'll start with Brother Malik. Uh,
3: Yes, sir. Well, first of all, thank you. Give thanks to you and, uh, and to everybody else and to everybody that's uh, listening and uh, is active in one way, shape or form to uh, deconstruct and, uh, and rebuild something better for our great-great-grandchildren. Um, I do wanna say that uh, the June 23rd to the 26th in Dallas, Texas and Cobra will be having their national conference and if you can make it out or you know people in that area that you may call and tell them to come through uh spread the word um because the fight for reparations is still on and um that's it really i, I you know appreciate everybody and uh like, like the move like the move family says on the move
0: on the move indeed brother the move. sister nia anything
4: well, I want to thank you for having me on. Um, also, for enlightening me about the 13th Amendment related to slavery currently in today's time. And sometimes we don't make that correlation. So that that was a good enlightenment. Um, also, for your listeners and viewers, though, be careful. When you're with the cops, just be careful. Be as calm as you can. Try to take down notes if you can. Keep your phone open and on, even if you just throw it on the floor. That's
0: I can tell you. Sounds like good advice from somebody who should know. Hey, like, like, hey Max, like we did last time. We were all together but we're at the gas station. <laughs> yes, yes. As a matter of fact, uh, I've told the listeners before about that, where you and I and Nia were at the gas station in Columbia, and we watched um, the police there profiling people and scanning plates and then just randomly arresting this brother and then arresting his, uh, I guess it was his wife or his girlfriend, for uh, asking why he was being arrested. They never even told anybody anything. But apparently that's how they were hunting people, just parked in the gas station, scanning plates. So, you know, that is certainly not proactive measures. That is uh, what slave catchers would do. And uh, we were there together and saw it with our own eyes, man. Uh, Trying to tell you about Columbia, South Carolina. It ain't no joke Mm -hmm. down here, man.
3: (laughs) Hey. <laughs> hey, it's all good. We coming yeah. back.
0: <laughs> Indeed. Well, uh, best wishes on your travels, uh, and good luck with all your poetry and your work in that effort as well. For those that don't know, Brother Malik Shabazz is a poet. Check him out on Facebook and check out some of his poetry and his graphic arts. He's excellent at a graph as a graphic artist as well. And uh, you know, if you might need his services, give him a call. All right. Peace, fam. We'll We'll talk to you soon. Peace. And we'll see you, an artist. Yes, sir. Yes, sir. And I think the 19th as well. All right. Well, uh, there we have it. Uh, The next thing I did want to cover a couple of stories, Scotty, before we got into our regular schedules uh, segment Uh, in the last half hour. About
1: 15 minutes before our last break.
0: Yes, indeed. Uh, One of the things I wanted to cover was the story that you put up there in regards to the GEO Group's quarterly earnings report. We know that in... August of was it August of last year? Wasn't it August eighteenth that the Department of Justice announced that we'd be phasing out their private prisons uh, contracts and the I think private prisons?
1: Than that, Max, because remember one of my criticisms of Barack Obama is that why are you going to wait to the last two months of your administration to to do this? Because if you'd have done it at the beginning of your administration or your second term. I mean it um we almost killed the private prisons with their stocks hitting rock bottom but they had time to recover and hold on until Trump got in there and I think that was done on purpose Max but I I think it was a lot later than August that that was announced I could be mistaken but it was still in the final uh quarter of his
0: last uh um uh term well, yeah, it was during the uh, election season last year. At one point, I believe. In, in any case, their stocks shot to the floor. Uh, they just took a nosedive. The prison stocks and Wall Street literally had to stop trading on those stocks, or they would have tanked completely. And then later on, with the Trump administration, their stocks shot up. Uh, at one point, a hundred and forty percent increase with the plans that they had going on. Well, you know, they have these quarterly earning reports, and we monitor what it is they're saying and doing, because they often will tell you what's about to happen before you even hear about it in the newspaper. And this is an article uh, on that where George Zoli, the CEO of the GEO Group, longtime CEO now, had some words to say about their earnings report. He says, good morning to everyone, and thank you for joining us in this call. We are very pleased with our strong first quarter results, which reflect the continued growth of our diversified business units of geo-corrections and detention, as well as geo-care. Uh, just for our listeners, in case you didn't know, Geo Group also manages facilities like Guantanamo Bay Detention Center, where the Haitians are being held and others uh, in, those, in those areas. Anyway, he says, our first quarter performance was driven by higher occupancy rates across our diversified real estate portfolio. Higher occupancy rates, that's what they call mass incarceration, wow. Particularly through a number of our federal facilities. In addition, our GeoCare division continued to experience year-over-year revenue and earnings growth, driven primarily by the continued utilization of its ISAP program with ICE. Our first quarter's results reflect the activation of our company-owned 780-bed Folkestone Processing Center under a fixed-price intergovernmental agreement between ICE and Charlton County, Georgia, which began ramping up in January of this year. The Folkestone Center is expected to generate approximately $21 million in annualized revenues. In addition to this project Project Activation. When they open up a prison and bring people to put into it, they call it Project Activation. We are very pleased to have been awarded a new contract by ICE in April of this year for the development and operation of a new company-owned 1,000-bed detention facility in Conroe, Texas. The new $117 million detention facility is expected to generate approximately $44 million in annualized revenues on its expected completion in the fourth quarter of 2018. They got prison construction planned up till the 2020s right now, man, and they are expecting the revenue to continue to increase beyond anything that they have so far seen. Uh, We just talked Just mentioned just now about a thousand bed facility in Texas. That's one hundred and seventeen million dollars thrown at them right there with forty four million a year in revenue just from a thousand men. Think about that. Forty four million in revenue from a thousand men or women in a bed. Now, how many prisoners do we have in this country? Mm -mm -mm. Scotty.
1: How many prisoners do we have? Some estimates, including in jails, are um, up to 2.5 million, right?
0: Right. So for every 1,000, you can uh, figure that it's an estimated $44 million in annualized revenues for the GEO Group or whatever company is running that. So just multiply that times.
1: Right. That's just one company. And you were correct, Max. I looked it up. Um, the Obama administration announced that it was going to phase out use of private prisons in August of 2016, which is still in the final quarter. And I felt like, you know, that that was I just felt, man, I i, I was like, man, this is probably purposeful, Um, probably did that to try to help Hillary Clinton. Um, But then, you know, because this is something, if you were about justice, if you were about addressing this problem of modern day slavery, you would have done that, I would think, after your second term. I'd have given you a pass if you you didn't do it during your first term because you were looking to get reelected. And I can imagine, you know, the money that would have been raised to try to defeat you. Okay. But your second administration. Okay. Uh, Come on. I felt like that was on. That was an insincere move by the Obama administration. Um, yeah,
0: yeah. That's all I got to say about that, Max. You know, the company we're referring to, the Geo Group, the corporation, has been accused of and convicted of multiple crimes against humanity, uh, even up to RICO charges. And they've been on uh, the subject of multiple investigations. We've had federal judges who have literally come out and called these places cesspools of constitutional violations. Um, It's just amazing that we seem to find no problem with issuing contracts out, multi tens of millions of dollars, if not hundreds of millions of dollars, like in the case of Alabama, contracts out to these companies which are so foul. I mean... I don't. Well, I guess I do get it. I can't say I, um, no. But I get
1: it. Yeah, but um, you know, we've reported stories where GEO Group guards were forcing inmates to to uh, engage in combat for uh rec for their recreational pleasure, the guards' pleasure. Um, I mean, making these guys fight each other to the death, and we must support. We must support those uh uh people who have filed that lawsuit to to uh against geo group and charging them with practicing slavery. So yeah, but uh looks like uh Otis is joining us again. Otis, did you have something else you wanted to share?
2: Yes, Scotty, because you hit another thing. I remember back in August when y'all were talking about the plunge in the Geo stock because I actually lived in Tucson for about four years. I actually trying to get back there i was back on the east coast doing some uh family business but i also found out the same time that obama was announcing that he was going to stop using uh prison private prisons to the federal government what he didn't tell you he had already handed out a no-bid contract for all of the immigrants that were crossing the border. So, so much to the point till they opened up vacant schools and uh, shut down hotels as temporary lockups. And Tucsonians were raised in hell and it never made the news because they were basically, you know, school buildings uh, in people's neighborhoods. And they were allowing these vacant school buildings and old hotels to be used as detention centers. A no big contract, NGO and uh, uh, Core Civic actually went into a partnership to keep from having to fight over the contract.
1: You know, all this also reminding me of the fact, and we reported it here on new abolitionist radio after, after the announcement by the DOJ, I think it was Sally Yates or I can't remember the woman's name uh, who gave the press conference, but even after, after they had announced that they were no longer going to renew these contracts. They renewed a contract with the GEO exactly. Group. Exactly. Brand- yeah,
0: and, guys, and they yeah, lied yeah. about
1: it,
2: too. Uh,
1: and guys.
2: So to one, more, one more thing when, when uh, Max was talking about the profit that they make just in Conway, Texas, because, like I said, I was out in Tucson, and at the time I'd gotten eye surgery, so I was just doing nothing but reading because I couldn't work. I found out that the GEO Group and uh, Core Civic. When I looked over their perspectives on how they pick companies and cities, they always pick small towns where they can be the primary employer. And not right. only do right. they get the, the guaranteed occupancy, they get the localities to give them 10 or 15 years of abatements with no taxes because of their employment.
0: Right. So and then they, they contribute a few dollars to local organizations. And, and, politicians. and get
2: the people exactly get the people addicted to the employment so they won't even worry about whether or not you're being treated properly because it's a boom. They basically go from a desolate town to forty or fifty percent of that whole town is employed there. So it's and hard to have compassion for people when it's gonna cut off your paycheck.
1: And another thing I'll point out about the uh final days or the Obama administration or the final months and when they announced that they were not going to use any more private prisons, they never ever talked about shutting down the um uh what
2: is it, Unicor, which is a private like, prison operated by the US government. By the federal government. And I I'm, I'm gonna throw in one more thing too, because most people think I'm crazy when I say this. I don't believe that Barack Obama wanted Clinton to win. And I tell you why I say that. If you look at the people that are giving him money now, all of them are the primary backers of the GEO Group and Core Civic. He handed out those uh, contracts to to the people for the detention centers. All of them are the same people given to his library, given to his new foundation. They're all in the prison industrial complex and the banks who finance them. I don't think he wanted to win. Wow. If you notice, he never really campaigned for her until the last quarter. He tried to. He called himself staying out of the murder of politicking and allowing the party to, you know, do its own thing. But if you look at who benefits from what he did, it's all GOP backers. It's not. It's not wow. people that are for Democrats. It's all Wall Street. The same people that Mnuchin and all of them are all Geithner's friends. They're all from, from uh, yes. Goldman Sachs, Lehman Brothers, Welcome to my- and most of them are Harvard and Yale grads. <laughs> so, as a matter of fact, friends of Rahm Emanuel, Rahm Emanuel and Ruben, all of them are his college buddies. <laughs> so, hey, I love the work y'all are doing, man. I try to push things your way and keep it advertised. And when I get my money right, I'm going to go ahead and join up.
0: All right. All right,
2: brother. That's some valuable
1: information that you shared, and I did see the article about who's the lobbyists that are giving to his new foundation, but what they're trying to put a face on it is, oh, he's going to be helping the young people and organizing the young people. See, that is my biggest problem with him. He's a Trojan horse. Hey, look, I
2: tie that in, too, and I tell people that's another reason that he didn't do anything for HBUs, HBCUs because if you find out what's happening at HBCUs for the last six or seven years, you'll find out that the same people that own the University of Phoenix, that which, which went bankrupt, the online college, all of those same people are the same ones that are with this guy called Sabin, who's, who's an a Israeli guy who oh, he did the Power Rangers and he's in music. Uh, he backed the girl Shakura and all of them. He's an Israeli American with dual citizenship. He actually was the one that made them bring in Tom Perez because he didn't want uh Ellis to be in charge to- of the Ellis. DNC.
0: Right. And he right. called
2: the shot APAC. You'll find out that APAC for the last seven or eight years has been going to every H B C U, giving them trips that they're elite in their college, giving them trips to the Jewish museum taking them around. Most of them have met Netanyahu. So they're getting black people like the guy Sellers that you see on Fox News. All of them have spent their four years being tandered to by AIPAC. So you're putting a black face on suppressing Palestine. Some of our youngest and brightest are out here strilling for Israel, talking about the Palestinians bordered on themselves. That shows you just how vile money can be. And Le- and Barack Obama is all a part of that. Some of them even in the tour to D.C., some of them get got to go to the White House. That's another reason that the the uh, Fox people got upset with him because he said he was going to be open about the visitor's law. You'll never see them in the visitor's law. But if you go to some of the HBC, uh, HBCUs, you'll find out that the people who were, were in the program they talk about how great it was and the experience they had coming from nowhere and then being able to go to Congress for four years and how it enlightened them about uh, politics. They're grooming black people to suppress black people and dark people.
1: Yo, uh, Otis, I don't know if you remember, but I actually had a guest on a black young lady who was a Zionist. And I exposed some of that stuff about how they were going into these colleges and recruiting Uh, our people, and and since you mentioned Israel, shout out to the Palestinian prisoners who are having their own hunger strike against mass incarceration, modern day enslavement.
2: Yeah, I had to go back over your uh, archives to see that. I missed it live. That was like uh,
1: two years ago.
2: Yes, I went back in some of your archives uh, because that's what I do on the side, man. I try to catch up on things. But I'm telling you, I, I'm trying to decide now if I'm going to be one of your uh, patrons, because, but I'm trying to wait until I get back out to Arizona before I set up anything. And I, I'll tell you my personal story on why I'm so adamant about it, because I said back in 1980, I watched 12 white folks find me guilty of something, and it took 16 months for the Ninth Circuit to overthrow it. <laughs> yeah, so I've had
0: my dealings with the system, too. Yeah, I think, I think we have all had exactly. some kind of damn dealings with this
2: exactly. demon called the so,
0: justice system.
2: Peace, peace to you, brothers, and more power to you. Thank Where you, are,
0: um, We are running low on time, so uh, I just want to make note of a couple of titles of uh, articles that we won't be able to reach tonight. But if you just go to our Facebook page or join our community on the uh, community at Black community dot dot com you can see all or the
1: btr community dot com
0: right or or the b t r community dot com um some of the stories would be uh david coma who is running for congress in south carolina district five just recently put out another video a campaign video uh check him out at vote coma k u l m a dot org and we'll put the video up on new abolitionist radio where he stays on path about the 13th Amendment and modern-day slavery. It remains a consistent part of his narrative, and I'm very appreciative of that because, you know, that doesn't always happen. <laughs> you know what I mean? Lip service is a thing, <laughs> but this brother is not playing lip service, and he has been proving that time and time again. So if you're in District 5 of South Carolina and slavery is a problem to you, vote David Coma, Green Party candidate. Uh, that's up there. Also, I think I mentioned earlier uh, that uh, the policemen who are responsible for the murder of uh, Alton Sterling uh, are not being charged with anything now. So the Justice Department is apparently is going to reveal soon. They haven't done it as far as I know, but sources say they will be revealed soon that they're not charging these police with anything at all. So that story will also be placed up in there. Um, And one final thing, I guess, just, you know, check out New Abolitionist Radio. You'll see all the extra stories. One final thing is tomorrow, Scotty, I have a a second interview on the Real News Network with uh, former political prisoner uh, Eddie Conway. And on this particular interview, we're going to go over the Convention of States and the Article 5 movement that's happening so I can help clarify it for uh, more people to understand and i gotta tell you scotty i've been cramming and and reading and researching and reaching out i uh, i even called a couple of friends who are constitutional lawyers to talk about this and uh, it's it's like a surprise to everybody nobody seems to know and it just shows how we are so separated from each other the right wing and the left wing we don't really pay attention to what's going on within those communities and uh, the tea party backed by alec uh in several factions apparently with at least 14 different amendments are moving towards a constitutional convention. They've got 10 states out of a required 38. So they're a third of the way there. And the momentum is growing and the money backing it is uh, upwards in the tens of millions. They're planning on getting this done. And I'm trying to understand how, as we spoke before, Scotty, we can either become a part of this and get a seat at the table with our Amendment for the 13th in hand, or sit back and watch as these alt right Tea Party, predominantly racist, white, rich conservatives stab the entire country in the back and reinterpret the Constitution, whether we like it or not. It's pretty rough. Anyway, I'll talk about it tomorrow with Eddie, uh, Scotty.
1: Yeah, well, Max, I, I like to say, though. What they're going to end up doing, as you said, stabbing us in the back is push us towards another civil war.
0: Yes, that's what I'm afraid of, Scotty. And that is the one moment in time that I don't want to see repeated. I, I've seen everything else repeated. And I have been trying my hardest to find ways to get around that particular circumstance. So, but, it,
1: but, hey, if they give you no choice, what did Kennedy say? Although I don't like quoting people like that. But what did he say? Those who prevent peaceful a uh,
0: revolution will uh, push us towards a violent one. Yeah, those who make peaceful revolution impossible make a violent revolution inevitable.
1: Thank you, Mesh. Thank you. And but I do agree. We do need to be at. We need to be there and not as spectators if this goes down. And at the same time, you know, um, it's just so hard, man, to attract money. To abolitionists, but this is something that we, because remember, we've said in the past years ago that perhaps we should, in terms of tackling tackling this issue state by state, is in those states that allow you uh, citizens to put a ballot initiative, you know, together to remove the exception clauses from the state constitutions. Man, we got a lot of work to do. We just really got a, a lot of work to do.
0: Yes, we do, Scotty. All of us collectively together have accomplished so much, but there's still so much uh, more work to do. And we're at a very uh, dangerous moment in history where things can pivot in any direction. We It gives us the opportunity to actually win for a change, but it also allows worst case scenarios to manifest. Um, just uh, a note, the first part of my interview on the Real News Network where Eddie Conway is available on New Abolitionist Radio. When the second part comes out, I will uh, put it up so everybody can be able to check it out and learn what I'm learning here. Uh, are we coming up on a, a late break, Scotty? Yes. Okay. All right. We're uh, coming up on a late break. You're listening to New Abolitionist Radio here tonight with Scotty Reed and Max Parthus. We'll be right back after these messages. <laughs>
5: okay
1: black talk radio since 2008 providing new black media for the masses uh-huh.
0: Welcome back to New Abolitionist Radio here on the BlackTalkRadioNetwork.com. Scotty, I'm I'm pulling up uh, the new segment that we have so we can get into our regularly scheduled segments, which is uh, For Freedom's Sake, a History Rebellion. And today we are going to remember John Brown's Raid of 1859. Uh, I'll read this, and it goes just after sundown. On the evening of Sunday, October 16th, 1859, John Brown led a group of 21 men, 16 white and five black, across the Potomac River from Maryland to Virginia. The immediate objective was the capture of the cache of weapons stored at the U.S. arsenal at Harper's Ferry. Brown's ultimate goal was to destroy the slave system of the South. His ultimate goal was to destroy the slave system of the South. The arms captured by the raid would allow Brown and his followers to establish a stronghold in the nearby mountains from which they could attack slaveholders and draw liberated slaves into their ranks. Brown's raid attained initial success, slashing the telegraph wires to cut off the town from the outside world. The raiders captured the local armory, arsenal, and rifle manufacturing plant. Then they rounded up 60 townspeople as hostages. Unfortunately, The Raiders were unsuccessful in their attempt to isolate the town. A B&O railroad train was detained as it passed through, but allowed to continue on its journey to Baltimore. Once it reached its destination, the alarm was raised and federal troops sent to the rescue. In the meantime, the local militia surrounded the town, preventing the Raiders' escape, realizing his predicament, John Brown led his men, along with nine hostages, to the small fire engine house adjacent to the armory. Federal forces arrived on Monday evening and successfully stormed the stronghold the following day, seriously wounding Brown. He was tried and convicted of treason against the Commonwealth of Virginia. Just before his hanging on December second, eighteen fifty nine, Brown uttered a prophetic warrant, forewarning of the coming civil war. He said, "I." John Brown am now quite certain that the crimes of this guilty land will never be purged away but with blood. John Brown's raid and subsequent trial inflamed the dispute between the country's abolitionists and pro-slavery factions hardening the lines that separated the North and the South. And we here at New Abolitionist Radio remember John Brown's raid on Harper's Ferry. Salute. Salute,
1: salute. You know, I was just reading today. um, Somebody had posted a question and they said, was Abraham Lincoln or they asked, was Abraham Lincoln a friend of black people or not? I said, absolutely not. I said anything he did towards ending slavery, uh, he was pushed to do it by the abolitionists. Yeah, he talked a good game. But at the end of the day, he said that that if it's a choice between slavery and preserving the union, Uh, he's going to preserve the union by letting slavery stand. Um, He also did not believe in the equality of black and white, white people. And he wanted to ship black people off to Africa. He wanted to get them out of the United States. But when I was looking up some of those quotes to share with this person who, uh, man, this person be saying some of the most craziest things And and then I was saying to the, I was looking up those quotes and I came across a New York times article where it described John Brown as a terrorist and (laughs) called an act of terrorism. I was so disgusted. That wasn't, you know, I guess they say one man's uh, terrorist is another man's freedom fighter. John Brown was a freedom fighter and all those whips him on that day.
0: Yes, he was. Uh, yes, he was. He, uh, in a way, he showed us that every aspect of abolitionism is always necessary. Every aspect; it all has to be worked together in order to make this change. And we're here to finish the job that was started by our ancestors and finally see freedom for the people of this nation. With that said, our next segment will be our ride of the 21st century Underground Railroad. Uh, Scotty, would you like to to uh, read that one? Um, kind of quickly? let me do.
1: Let me do the abolitionist in profile,
0: and okay. you do the rider. Is that okay? Yeah, that's perfectly fine with me, brother. Uh, I got you covered. Okay. Our rider of the 21st Century Underground Railroad today is Malcolm Bryant, who uh, died at 42, less than a year after he received his freedom. Less than a year after he was freed from prison, Malcolm Jabbar Bryant died of a stroke a few weeks shy of his 43rd birthday. Bryant died March 8th. 2017, according to a notice from the Beverly D. Chromatier Funeral Home, born April 6, 1974, Brian was buried in Mount Zion Cemetery in Baltimore, the notice said. Brian, a client of UB Innocence Project Clinic director Michelle Nethercott, spent nearly 18 years in prison before his convictions were vacated in May of 2016. He was convicted in 1999, in the murder, murder of Tony Bullock, a 16-year-old girl who was repeatedly stabbed after she was dragged into an empty lot off Harford, Harford Road. So four friends of Bryant's testified that he they'd been with him the night of the murder. The jury believed the sole witness, a friend of Bullock's, who picked Bryant out of a six-pack photo lineup. Bryant was freed after long-sought DNA tests confirmed what he said all along. The state had the wrong man. The state for years fought the release of the physical evidence that ultimately proved Bryant's innocence. We had a fight every step of the way on the DNA testing, Nethercott said in the fall 2016 issue of Baltimore Law Magazine. It wasn't until last spring that a judge ordered DNA testing of the victim's t shirt in the area most likely to have come into contact with the attacker. Nethercott suspected the murderer might have been cut on the hilt of the knife as Bullock was stabbed in a frenzy. She was right. The laboratory that tested the spot on the T-shirt found a full male profile consistent with the DNA under the fingernails of the victim who had tried to fight off her attacker. The DNA profile was not Bryant's. Bryant walked out of the Baltimore courthouse east a free man on the afternoon of May 11, 2016. In a television interview that night, Brian offered hope to other wrongfully convicted prisoners, saying, Don't give up. An angel is coming. Nethercott described Brian as one of the kindest, sweetest clients she'd ever represented, a man who never failed to express his concern for and appreciation of the Innocence Project staff that assisted him. He endured so much tragedy through his life, including his years of incarceration for a murder he didn't commit, but he never gave up the fight to prove his innocence and That strengthened my resolve to never give up either, despite many setbacks over the years, Nethercott said. I will always remember him, and I miss him. And here at New Abolitionist Radio, we remember you, brother, and we salute you. Salute. The real freedom. Word, word.
1: Um, Our abolitionist in profile tonight will be Sarah Louisa Fortin Purvis, uh, born in 1814, and passed in transition in 1883 born in 1814 in philadelphia sarah louisa fortin was a writer poet and abolitionist like all of james fortin's daughters sarah was educated in private schools and by private tutors the fortin daughters studied french art and music and grew up reading european literature Sarah and her sisters were members of the Female Literary Association, a Philadelphia-based African-American women's literary group founded in 1831, which purpose was the mental improvement in moral and literary pursuits of its members. It was through these types of organizations that Sarah's writing and speaking was nurtured. As an abolitionist writer, and poet Sarah's poems were widely read and distributed throughout the abolitionist movement and her poem The Grave of the Slave was published in William Lloyd Garrison's The Liberator newspaper. Um I'm going to play a, a dramatic uh reading of The Grave of the Slave by um uh, they got her name wrong on the uh, video. Sarah Louisa Fortin Purvis, This is her poem, The Grave of the Slave.
5: The Grave of the Slave by Sarah Louisa Fulton. In a low and ill-thatched hut, Stretched on a floor of clay, With scanty clothing round her wrapped, The dying woman lay. No husband's kindly hand, No loving child was near, to offer her their aid or shed a sympathising tear. But now the ripened cane was red for the knife. And not a slave could be spared to aid his mother or his wife. She is struggling now with death. Deep was that dying groan. For a corpse now lies on that cold clay floor. The soul set free has flown. The planter walking by, chanced at the door to stop, and he cursed his luck. There was one hand less to gather in the crop. Oh, Jesus, hast thou said, the poor your care shall be, who visit not the poor and sick, they do it not to me.
1: Sarah Louisa Fortin Purvis, 1814 to 1883, New Abolitionist Radio salutes
0: you. Salute, indeed. Uh, thank you for sharing the poem, Scotty. Found a lot mm-hmm. of the ancestors were poets.
1: Yes, they were.
0: Shocked and me to find Frederick Douglass was it, too.
1: <laughs> yeah, it, and again, the role that media has played in abolitionism. We cannot underestimate the power of of words of media.
0: Yes, sir, man. Well, we've got a few minutes left, Scotty. Um, the only thing that I've got to say for this evening is a reminder that on the 13th of May in Columbia, South Carolina, we will be having the fifth annual Spoken Word Gala. Uh, We have a list of honorees there that day, uh, one of which is myself. I'll be receiving the Will Bell Humanitarian Award. Only general uh, admission tickets are left now. If you're in the Columbia area, you don't want to miss the star-studded lineup of people who are really uh, making things happen within the spoken word community with their arts and with their talents. So uh, check it out on the Abolitionist Radio, the link to be able to purchase your general admission tickets.
1: Oh, was that your final statement?
0: Uh, Other than my, you know, regular line that I'm going to give at the end, brother. (laughs) Let me
1: give my uh, final uh, statement. I want to thank uh, Brother Malik and Nia Shabazz uh, for coming on tonight and sharing their stories with us and for picking up the baton of abolitionism we need to keep growing this abolitionist army i want to thank each and every uh, uh thank otis for calling in and sharing that valuable information that he shared and i want to thank each and every person uh who took the time out of their day to tune in to this radio program uh to find out you know what we can do to end slavery once and for all not just here in the United States, but as has been pointed out tonight, this is a global problem. So, shout out to our brothers and sisters and the victims of modern slavery in Ghana.
0: Yes, Scotty. I echo all your sentiments, especially towards our guest of the evening, Sister Nia and Brother Malik. And I would urge people to right now go to I Am We Ubuntu, U B U N T U. Dot com, and sign up your organization there in support of the march, uh, the Prisoners Human Rights March, <laughs> the Millions for Prisoners Human Rights March on Washington, D.C. on August 19th. And when you sign up, just leave them with a message. Tell them Max sent you because he said that abolition is a reason for a revolution so we can finally know some peace. Peace. rise up, rise
1: up. Rise up.